and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we dive into our October graphic novel selection, Hellboy Omnibus Volume 1, Seed of Destruction by Mike Mignola. The first story of Hellboy came out in March of 1994 and ran to June of 1994. It was a limited edition run. And then finally, The Seed of Destruction was reprinted in October, just in time for Halloween in 1994. The remaining stories in this came from 94 through 97, and this collected work was all put together and published in May of 2018, so yours truly and Ray could go about reading and reviewing. So, Ray, thanks for joining me, and how are you? I'm ready for some Hellboy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know something, I had to find a Kirby connection with the down below. Besides the demon, we have in our Kirby kernel a really interesting tidbit which I know you're going to enjoy. So let's head on over to our Kirby Colonel. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. In our Kirby Colonel, we have Kirby's Satan's Six, number one. It's like, wow, how metal is that? It's like, where did this come from? Well, I found an interesting blog entry by none other than Tony Isabella, and he is a very well-known writer, editor, and artist in comics. As a matter of fact, he invented the character Black Lightning for DC and then Black Goliath for Marvel. And he recounts, in the 1990s, Topps Comics leased the rights to several Jack Kirby creations. One of them was Satan Six, a series about five humans who were deemed not good enough for heaven and not bad enough for hell. The sixth member of the team was Frightful, a sort of demon top sergeant. As these humans were none too bright, they attempted to win their way into hell by doing bad deeds on earth. During my time, and this is Tony Isabella recounting as a writer, with them, things never went as planned. Kirby created most of Satan's six characters, drew two design sheets of them, and wrote and penciled eight pages of a story he never completed. My job was to develop the series and figure out how to use those eight pages in the first issue. And to continue or to supplement this story, I go to Bob, who is the default entry guy over at the Jack Kirby Museum's Jack Kirby Comics weblog. And Bob recounts that this is the only one of the Topps Kirbyverse books to actually feature more than just a cover by Jack Kirby. Not counting the cards, apparently, that were in this Topps things, because of course it's Topps, they have to have cards with it, that they were packaged with. He goes on to say that this eight-page Kirby story, not quite seamlessly mixed in among other pages, the single pages were inked by none other than Steve Ditko, Joe Sinat, Terry Austin, and Frank Miller, while Mike Royer also inked the remainder. There's also a centerfold by Kirby of the main characters. Kirby created these characters in the late 1970s for the unrealized Jack Kirby comics line, or it's been 
very affectionately referred to as the Kirbyverse. The few pages he did set up the premise, a group of lovable losers from throughout history looking to get out of purgatory and being sent to Earth. It would have been interesting to see exactly where Kirby would have gone with that. The actual series that was published had some fun stuff written by Tony Isabella, but the art was distractingly un-Kirby and just not very good, according to Bob. For the Kirby pages, Royer and Sanat are, of course, just about beyond reproach as Kirby anchors because they actually had worked directly with Jack throughout his career. Austin does a decent job, and he also says that Miller's style was a bit too heavy and which is fine for a single page. There was just, and that his favorite page that was inked was done by Steve Ditko. He, and he also says he enjoyed the Ditko Kirby art of the sixties. The cover of this particular issue was done by Todd McFarlane. And that is the story behind Satan's six. That's a really cool concept. And it's funny when I first was thinking about this, the fact that it almost came out in the 90s would have been perfect for the 90s. But the fact that Jack sort of invented this group of <laughs> people who caught between, you know, as early as he did, that it was he was kind of ahead of his time on that one. Yeah, I mean, he, he was ahead of his time in so many different lines and stories. I mean, I just go back to OMAC that we read back in August as far as the comic book character of the month, for example. I'm looking at the spread online right now. You can find that centerfold where they have all the characters. And, and it's quite a nice drawing, I think. It's six level, lovable dopes from Limbo. In order to get rid of them, Satan sends them back to Earth to earn their pitchforks. And you've got, uh, you've got a um, kind of a stud, like a knightly looking figure called Brian Blue Dragon. And then you've got, well, he's got kind of a Sherlock's home, Sherlock Holmesian look, but more of a Sherlock Holmes from the gutter look called Hard Luck Harrigan. There's a guy named Dr. Mortius that looks like the Hyde side of Jekyll and Hyde. There's Kuga the Lion Killer, which is a obviously a African, what am I trying to say? Not a Zulu, maybe a Zulu. What's the tribe from Kenya? Anyway, a tall warrior, big strong warrior. And then you got Desira of Babylon and, and then a um, uh, one of Kirby's like monstrous demon type creatures called Frightful. And that's the, obviously that's the sergeant there. Kind of a brick of a character. They're really cool. Really cool. It is cool. It is very cool. And again, something that really doesn't get a whole play considering just how prolific Jack was throughout his career. And this coming out again, very late in his career, but the premise and initial renderings, the seventies, just, just crazy. And you know, it's funny. We had, talked about Jack and where he would find time for some of this stuff. I mean, he did collage and it just seemed the ideas just kept pouring out of him and he would quick capture them and put them to the side. And it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if he had been allowed to build out this Kirby verse. And I have a feeling that this may have been around the same time that Jack had just gotten back with Marvel was working on Devil Dinosaur Machine Man and then had worked and then moved over to animation helping with the Fantastic 4 series. So Kirby was interesting in how he managed to stay relevant for so long even past his clearly past his prime, you know, when he when he was a little shakier with his drawings and a little more scattered with his ideas. He still had such a font of creativity that people were seeking him out and they I think he just generally was a the kind of champion or the Rudy that you wanted on your bench, right? He's the guy that he's the guy that inspired everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he lived up to in the best sense of the term, his blue collar upbringing. 
He was a lunch pail guy. They'd say he starts a ham and egger. He would get dirty, was prolific with regard to page output, just a grinder. But in addition to being a grinder, just endless ideas flowing out of that brain and onto the page. Great stuff. Well, you know, someone that was very much inspired by Jack is our author. So why don't we head over to a little creative chatter and let's discuss our writer and artist here of Hellboy Omnibus, Seed of Destruction, Mike Mignola. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. Mike Mignola started his career publishing comics in the fanzine The Comic Reader at the age of 19 in 1981. In 1983, he was employed by Marvel Comics as an inker. In this capacity, he worked on such titles as Power Man and Iron Fist, Masters of Kung Fu, Daredevil, and The Defenders. He eventually got the opportunity to pencil his own short stories in Marvel Fanfare. In 1985, his own comic miniseries, Rocket Raccoon, was published, while he also contributed to The Incredible Hulk and Alpha Flight. Since 1986, he has been an independent artist, so wow, he caught that bug early. Working on titles for both Marvel and DC, including the miniseries The Chronicles of Quorum, Phantom Stranger, World of Krypton, Cosmic Odyssey, Triumph and Torment, which we read, Gotham by Gaslight, Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, Iron Wolf, Fires of the Revolution, and Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Besides his contributions to Marvel and DC, Mignola worked on the comic adaptation of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula for Topps Comics in 1993, and on Alien's Salvation with Dave Gibbons for Dark Horse, also in 93. Halfway through the 90s, he created his own character, the supernatural detective Hellboy, who starred in a miniseries and graphic novels published by Dark Horse, in which the artist would go on to display the full range of his talent, and boy, won't we get into that very shortly. Mignola worked with Guillermo del Toro on a film version of Hellboy, which was released in 2004. He has also participated in other cinema projects, such as Blade II and Disney's Atlantis Lost Empire. For more on Mike, please go to our Kirby's Kids episode in Season 2, Number 15, A Conversation, Mike Mignola with Joshua Dysart. Okay. Any thoughts? I would say this. I, I was surprised to find that. So I was born in 67. He must have been born in 62. And surprised that he was five years older than I am. He skews really young, I think. And in his comics, I sort of think of him as a younger person. And I guess he was drawing Hellboy in his 30s, started drawing Hellboy in his 30s. But still, there's something about the comic that seems really fresh even today. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing, aspect this particularly with hellboy is the reason it seemed fresh to me is the things that mike mignola likes to draw which is basically skulls demons monsters are pretty classic and timeless so when looking at the art for hellboy which we'll go into more detail it's got for me although stylistically very much mignola a classic feel to it with respect to subject matter so therefore, it's kind of timeless, and, and I can't pigeonhole it to a, to a time period, for me at least. Yeah, that's true. You're right. It does kind of exist in between. You know, it has that gothic feel, and yet it has modern technologies, and but it seems set apart from all of that. Part of it's the simplicity of the... Of the simplicity is the wrong word. He presents these very stark, contrasting, uh, heavy images that 
almost like stained glass or something. I think they just, I think they hold up partly because I guess some artists take on the style of their time and other artists just develop their own thing. And Mignola is one of those that just had his own thing. Right. And it, and it doesn't date itself because it's not associated with any particular stylistically. It's not associated with any particular time. And then content wise, it's not nailed down to any particular time other than being post-World War II. Exactly. He nailed it. He really threaded the needle well on this. And let's head over to our literary aisle where we will delve into the stories in Hellboy Omnibus Volume 1, Seed of Destruction. Our land hole. There's our literary aisle. Now that we're on our literary aisle, let's go ahead and take a look at this collection. It, this thing's a beauty, having come out in May of 2018. In here, it collects Seed of Destruction, The Wolves of St. August, The Chain Coffin, Wake the Devil, Almost Colossus, and two additional promotional comics that were put out by Dark Horse to try to pump up the Hellboy brand. Now, in the interview that I had reviewed for the Kids Art House Cinema, Mike had mentioned that Hellboy came out of an original con drawing. He would be sitting there at cons, and at one point he was working Batman. And, you know, folks would come up to him and say, hey, can you draw Batman for me? What can you do? And occasionally he would get just a Mike Mignola fan who would say, hey, Mike, can you draw me something that you would like to draw? And invariably, he would start drawing this monster, which then developed into Hellboy. And he ended up naming the character by just putting the words Hellboy on a big belt buckle. <laughs> so, you know, the, the in, it's interesting how these kind of come or form organically. And then from there, I got to go do my own thing. Thank goodness he did and found a home over Dark Horse because it seems like a great pairing for that origin story, which is essentially seed of destruction. And it's got, it's got a broad appeal to it, doesn't it? I mean, I feel like, I, I don't know if I know anyone who doesn't like Hellboy. You find people torn about the movies and such, but as far as the comics goes, I think everybody thinks it's pretty cool. Yeah, I have yet to run in circles that has said, oh, no, I don't really care for that. I think that was great. It's more like, wow, that is really different looking. That's cool art. And oh, I love the premise. Now, mind you, you can never go wrong with punching Nazis. <laughs> right. He's, he's hitting a couple. He's hitting a couple tropes that are admittedly, you know, winners. It's like, yeah, putting puppies in your advertising. He's got punches Nazis. He's got, you know, like uh, demonic images, demons and, and paranormal stuff. He's got Lovecraftian things going on here. He's got bullets flying. You know, there's a, I like that Hellboy's main gun is this gigantic looking six shooter you know he's hitting a lot of cool notes here oh no doubt he is and i also love oversized rock'em sock'em robot you know like rock arm and fist that just packs a punch when he's able to connect with something it's it's pretty amazing i have to admit when i first saw drawings of hellboy i was like what is the deal with that like what does he have one giant arm and one little arm and i was thinking i remember at the time thinking that seemed really weird and kind of dumb as soon as you get into it and understand it a little more it, it makes it i don't know it gives the character a lot of personality i think to be asymmetrical like that it absolutely does it absolutely does and you know within seed of destruction here we open up in 1944 and essentially the summoning of this demon by by some Nazi occultists. And from there, him being rescued by uh, the United States Army and him 
ending up meeting up with who he would declare his father at the time, which was basically a scientist working with the army. And then we fast forward to actually the modern era of that time in which this was done. And that is the scene changes to 1994. So he does actually write of the time. And we're transported to the headquarters of the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, which is located in New York around that area. Pretty cool to see what all they end up dealing with. I mean, you had mentioned before Lovecraftian elements. There's this Lovecraftian statue of a tentacle creature and a human meditating at its feet. And you have all sorts of really gonzo stuff going on in this thing. Well, this this professor study has, you know, I'm looking at a page here that's got, it looks like a, a six-armed Indian god of some sort, a Mayan head, something from ancient Sumeria. It looks like Gilgamesh with wings or something. He's got he's, um, and a, a Buddhist statue. He's got a whole bunch of different archaeological references here that you know draw together uh, i don't know sort of everything people love about the ancient ancient astronauts you know mysteries <laughs> unsolved mysteries of the past kind of stuff yeah no no doubt about it and it's interesting that the story really kicks off with the death of his adopted father this scientist and out of that, we're then introduced to the other members of his team. And man, this is a real interesting assortment of folks. I mean, you, you've got Liz Sherman and you've got Abe Sapien. And Abe Sapien character, I, I just think is so quirky and wonderful at the same time. And his, his ability to read at a, an amazing clip and absorb information how he then deals with being out of the water and in the water. Right. They made some great choices with him in that first movie by having, first of all, you have a, a consummate suit actor, Doug, Doug Jones, and then you've got him voiced by the guy who did Niles and, you know, Frazier, right? It's a, it's, that was a great, that was a great, pairing i think to make that character come to life i really like that they start this story with the death of his adopted father there's something about hellboy that could come off as being very self-absorbed and overly cool right overly metal and they they bring him right down to earth and make him just a big lovable doofus right from the get-go here you know he's a hard exterior soft interior kind of character and uh, they make you like him right well they mike mignola makes you it makes you like him right away oh yes absolutely they do and he also mignola taps into so much great horror veins and when we go to this rasputin character who you know eventually had had summoned originally hellboy in and he's talking about the Ogru Jihad, which is this otherworldly presence in this world and other world. And it gets rather Lovecraftian for me in this in this department. It's it's really cool what he crafts here. Well, so the, the Rasputin character is a great, I mean, first of all, Rasputin is one of the great mysterious figures in history. The whole assassination attempt on him that gets filled, filled full of bullets and falls out of a window into a frozen river. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's some great stuff there. But then the first time we see Rasputin here in the comic, the panel that he's in is so iconic. I mean, it's a great picture. He's standing there with his arms outstretched in these um, big, 
mechanical goggles that have goggles, uh, gauntlets that have, you know, tubes and, and electrodes and things sticking out of them. He's got an upside down pinnacle on his chest with a Nazi symbol and a dragon over it. He's in that typical Mike Magnolia. Uh, this is really something he does for Hellboy. He's got a style that you see everywhere, but particularly in Hellboy, he does these super strong blacks that are obscuring, kind of, you know, sort of defining with negative space, but his negative space is the black space, not white space. And it just, I thought this was a, a very stark and cool image to set up the villain right off the bat. It makes you want to see this villain over and over again. Indeed, indeed. And with that villain, you have the villain tapping into the Audru Jihad. And this is a really cool premise. These are the dragons of revelation destined to bring about the end of the world. And they were imprisoned at one point by the right hand of doom shortly after the creation of Earth before they spawned 369 children known as the Agruham. And these end up becoming the main antagonists and constant thread throughout this Hellboy series. And they were inspired by the great old ones of H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. So anyone that's a big Lovecraft and Cthulhu fan will just, I think, take to this like a fish to water as far as Hellboy's concerned, or Abe Sapien for that matter to water. Yeah, I like that he I like that he pulls in Lovecraftian elements without explicitly naming Lovecraftian elements, right? There's a, cer there's a certain laziness in modern times where people just kind of steal the Cthulhu mythos because it's in the public domain and just invoke names and try to generate Lovecraftian horror by invoking those names. And I like that Mignola has really made his own thing here that's in that field. It also avoids some of the, uh, you know, the problem. Lovecraft was not a, a great figure from history. And it's like always the kind of bare saying sometimes that somebody is problematic without getting into it. But you know, he was extremely racist. And so you don't, I mean, I think it's good of him to kind of put a little distance, but still grab what was good about that writing, the, the cool otherworldly alien uncaring nature of the older gods and even our main villain here is he's a religious anarchist right so he has kind of a nobility about him even though he's a despicable you know he's the guy he's a nazi right <laughs> you want to punch him but at the same time you sort of understand him and and uh yeah it's, it's just super interesting it is it is and you know in this chapter one there's this little section at the end of that that deals with the african myth about a frog to then tie into these killings that have happened and this transformation of these folks into these possessed frog-like beings. And I really love all of these places that Mignola is pulling from and then providing you, Peter, this context to then better understand his inspirations as he continues the story. Yeah, his, and actually his artistic inspirations are on display here as well. So there's kind of an interesting thing I noticed in the background of one of these panels. I'm on page uh, 27, if anybody happens to have their book handy or whatever, I, I can describe it though. There's an office space, and in that office space, you get, first of all, there's an office at the building at the top that looks a little bit like like the House of Falling Waters, so you have Frank Lloyd Wright. And then there's a panel in here where they have a lamp and a window that are in the prairie style of Frank Lloyd Wright. So he's making explicit reference to a kind of brutal minimalism, minimalism but also you know naturalism of, of Frank Lloyd Wright. I thought that was a really interesting call out. Yeah. I, wow. That's a great catch, Ray. But in that's <laughs> that is 
spot on. It's pretty explicit. And I think he's he's really trying, you know, at times to show his... And actually, if we go to the... Uh, I mean, it's skipping way ahead at the back end of this comic, there's a sketchbook. And one of the sketches has, has got one of those House of Falling Waters kind of houses in it. And so, you know, that's clearly one of his influences. No, there's no doubt about that. And for all the comic geeks out there, and you know how much I love those sketchbooks at the back of these comics to see how the thought process was revealing itself over time and seeing how the evolution of a character actually started. It's really cool to look at that and go, wow, okay, this is this is where he was coming from. This is what the early iterations of Hellboy look like. This is what the antagonists look like here, the big bads. And yeah, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of goodness in this. And there's 17 pages of drawings back there, 17 pages. So that's a lot. And it's, it's all welcome. It's not like it's uh, padding out space. There's all kinds of content in here. You don't feel like you're getting short shrift on the story so it could fit in his sketches. Not at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're getting 366 plus pages of goodness. So this, this is a thick tome from that, that department. You are not shortchanged whatsoever. Cedar's destruction as a whole, without giving away the whole story here, what, what were your thoughts as it played to an origin story and then immersing the reader in the comic itself? Yeah, I think it has a lot of classic elements that were fun. It, they go to visit basically a haunted, not a haunted house, but it's a big Victorian house in the middle of a lake. And, uh, you know, so that recalls classic haunted house stuff. There's a story about this family that one of their ancestors had gone on a whaling voyage and discovered some oddness in the South Seas. And, you know, so that calls in Moby Dick and like different, you know, classic colonial or a colonialism era, you know, like stories of adventure stories, exploration stories. And then it traces all that back to the future, to the, to the present, I should say. And just pulling all that together made it super interesting and leveled. You know, the drawings are beyond cool. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I've got lots to say about those, but we'll talk about that later. I thought it was a good story. I, although I haven't said that, I don't know that it was my favorite story in the volume. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. This was a really captivating story with respect to, hey, here's something new. Here's something different. Here's something that's really original. But one of my favorite stories is actually the next one in this omnibus and i loved the wolves of saint august oh my gosh not only visually thing but the story itself and mind you i'm a sucker for anything dealing with lycanthropes <laughs> so it definitely appealed to those sensibilities in me. and you know i before we we get too deep into this one i, I do want to give credit here all over on siege of destruction mike received some scripting assistance from none other than John Byrne with Cedar Destruction. And Mike is a personal friend of John Byrne. And it was really cool to see John lending that scripting assistance to Mike in how he would do that, you know, four issue limited run series that would introduce the Hellboy character to everyone. So I do want to acknowledge that. And he, I don't know if you can specifically pick out any Byrne moments in it, but I think from what Mike Duvall in articles around this time and then in interviews over the years, that Byrne was a bit of a mentor for him and helped him organize his thoughts and how he wanted to introduce this Hellboy character. So if anything else, 
Byrne at least helped Mike organize his brain to then finally introduce this character to us. Yeah, I think it's a really fruitful collaboration. I mean, there's a hundred pages of story there, and it sets up a lot of what becomes the Hellboy intellectual property, the brand. Right, exactly, exactly. As we're then, when we get into The Wolves of St. August, this is pure Mignola. He wrote this, he drew it. You're getting here pure distillation of what he envisioned this particular story to be. And it's very, very cool. Yeah, there's so much to like, so much to like about this story. This is gives you that classic paranormal investigation vibe. You get the sense of the larger, see, what is it? The Bureau for Paranormal, it's the BPRD, right? Research, research, research and Defense, I think. Bureau for Paranormal, yeah. And so you get the sense that you've got another character coming from there that it's going to be kind of an ensemble cast comic. So Hellboy's not always the, doesn't always have to be in the spotlight. Right, it's not all about Hellboy. Just uh, I, I don't know what what else to say about this one. It's a really classically done story, paced well. It is, but my favorite moment in this story was the girl and his encounter with the girl. When all of a sudden you said, "Oh, sweetie, no, nobody hates you," and then she says, "He does," and this is this possessed little girl, and then all of a sudden she has transformed into a wolf. I just found that movement from panel to panel, and then you turn the page and boom, there she is in full-blown, transformed face mode, and then Hellboy then crashing into the scene. I just found that not only visually arresting, also surprising as a reader. I thought it was very well done and had a good tension lead up that you would tend to experience in watching a horror flick or a thriller. Yeah, this one definitely has a a hammer horror vibe to it. And if you'll notice, one thing that's kind of cool about reading these comics digitally is when you you can zoom out to this multi-page view where you can see a whole bunch of pages at once. And the first half of the comic is done in these kind of sandy, brighter colors. And then on page 125, he falls into darkness. And all the panels after that are done in kind of a muted cyan and then the Hellboy red. And it it really divides this issue into above ground, below ground, and sets up a really cool, spooky atmosphere. And also this, anytime you go down into a crypt or a dungeon or whatever, there's this sense of the journey to the underworld where anything can happen, you know, the mythical underworld. And I it's, I think that was just really well handled in this one. I agree. That color palette is fantastic. As a matter of fact, I felt at times that often reminded me of, you know, those black light posters, those, you know, glow in the dark t-shirts where I'm not talking neon colors, folks. I, I'm really talking the very classic uh, heavy metal look. I mean, he is a master of blacks, the grays, the blues, to then make the red of Hellboy pop off the page. It reminds me a little bit, too, of uh, old school 3D glasses, because you, know, you got the one red lens and the one blue lens, and it has that kind of vibe to it as well. Yes. Yeah. And it, again, since we are gushing over, and, and mind you, Mignola is the director of There is no doubt about it. this is his color palette. However, execution is critical, and James Sinclair does a wonderful job, particularly in this story, with those colors and that coloring. It's 
It's great. So anything else to say about the Wolves of St. August? No, but I think, well, I, I will say this. If you want to read one Hellboy story to kind of see what it's all about and to see if you would like the series, this would be a great one to pick up, just that one one story, because it's very self-contained, but it has some of the classic elements, and it's just a, a, a great read. I wholeheartedly agree. It really gives an accurate portrayal of what you're in store for here with the Hellboy character. Our next story in the series is The Chained Coffin. And this was originally published in a Black and White Dark Horse Presents comic in August of 1995. And it was specifically set up for appearance in there and commissioned as such because they Dark Horse wanted to promote this Hellboy character and make it part of this larger black and white publication so it wasn't until we get it here on the omnibus that this thing actually gets colored and we get a different flavor than what the black and whites look like i went online to see what indeed that original looked like and there's a difference with respect to the visual presentation and how i was reacting to it i definitely hearkened back to many of those marvel horror magazines from the 70s and also when jj and i reviewed the uh, kung fu series too it you know those magazines all being in black and white the, the emphasis then is on making sure you don't over ink and you still get the nuances of the pencilings in there and those are indeed there and you know that, that explains one thing to me because the chain coffin all of a sudden gets very texty. There's there's a lot of text boxes in here and a lot of text boxes chained together. And you think about that, that is, you can get away with a lot of that, a lot more of that in a black and white comic because, you know, ostensibly anytime you're putting in big blocks of text, you're, you're that's a black and white element on a color page if you're in color. And so it draws attention to itself. But if you're embedding that in an already black and white page, somehow it, it blends in better. And I, I think that's why he could get away with more text here. But then when it when it transitioned into color, maybe that's a piece that didn't translate quite as well. Yeah, I perfect with respect to the observation there. I had not given it that depth of thought but again fantastic point that you're bringing up because you're right you do and can get away with that taking up space on the page when there isn't the color that's around it i think if mignola ever has a low point which he doesn't really if but if i'm gonna if i'm gonna be super nitpicky and say there's a time when it's not not as brilliant as the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, it's still great. His story and his art sometimes pull apart a little bit when he gets heavy into explication or text like that, where he's telling you a story in text on one side and a story in pictures on the other, and they're not quite as blended together. But that's that's just... Like that's the worst of a, that's like having the, you know, only mildly flavorful chocolate in the box of chocolates, right? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And I also feel that where other writer artists fall short is in the dialogue department. I really enjoy Mike Mignola's economy of words because everything on the page has meaning behind it. There is not a lot of drivel, exposition, or 
vernacular speak from certain characters to convey either a certain point of social status or area that they came from or anything that's kitschy or cliche. He gets what he needs to get across in the dialogue and then leaves the visuals to complement that and also continue the thought in some instances. Yeah, I think so. He's really good at staging the story and deciding when to tell it in text and when to tell it in pictures and when to do both at the same time. And I don't know, it's, it's I find it to be a pretty masterful bit of storytelling, honestly. There were times when I had to connect the dots a little bit. You know, maybe that's my inexperience with reading comics or maybe it's just, you know, that, that these are fairly, that you have to work two parts of your brain at once, right? When you read a comic. You can't neglect the images and you can't neglect the text. And there's there's a part of you that's constantly wanting to do one or the other. Like you get wrapped up. And that's why I think a lot of people, you know, love comics is because you, you really have to kind of go over and over them. It's hard to get everything on a first read. So when I say I had to join, a, you know, some things together in my head, I think it's because I was trying to get all of it in a first read. And you really, I'm not by nature a person that really... I have to force myself to slow down and absorb things as opposed to speed, speed read and strip mine, you know, data. <laughs> this one, you really have to slow down at times to really get the nuances of what's going on and the time shifts and the position shifts from scene to scene. We're Kirby's kids. Hey, 